Good morning, everybody, and welcome to Fencing by the Book, the podcast where we take an in-depth look at the early Lichtenhauer longsword glosses. I'm your host, Mike Smoridge, and joining us are our panel of Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chichester, Stephen Cheney, and TQ. And today, an extra special guest, Jess Finley. This is episode 26, where we'll be discussing line 75 on the Nachheisen, or rushing after. So we're recording this immediately following our last episode, so we haven't been up to anything, although we're skipping over the last month of stuff that we've been doing. But we do have a question from our listener. Thank you, Brandon, our only listener. Uh, He says that, (laughs) I remember way back in one of the earliest casts that Yud Lu isn't pronounced, Judd Lev, wait, isn't (laughs) pronounced that way. Joey was doing some research on possible extent extent pronunciation from Welsh. Was there an update to that idea? Um, It was actually, if I remember it correctly, uh, Belgian, but I'm not sure about it. Um, I often spend a lot of time on researches and then I completely forget about them. The 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 research on Yudlev, as I'd say, um, was one of them. I am planning on picking them up again, but I haven't come to a cl- conclusion just now. Um, okay. I, I think there's probably a bit bit of confusion with Welsh has a double L, which stands for a sound that my partner is going to beat me up if I try and pronounce, but it's something like <laughs> huh. So she's from a place called Hlanwano, spelled with a double L at the start of the word. <laughs> um, I would like to point out, though, that... Yeah. Go ahead, Joy. Nah, nah, oh, okay. I'm also having troubles with uh, the length of the uh, L, E sound, sorry, if it's, if it's live or is it, if it's lev, and there is... I haven't come to a conclusion yet, so I, I can't really say anything just yet. What about Loy? Is that off the table now? <laughs> Was it on the table once? I thought so. Like, assuming the W. <laughs> oh, wait, it was. It was my idea, wasn't it? <laughs> um, yes, I think it's off the table. So, the, the, the vocalization into U, so Loy, um, takes place a bit later. Um, I'm not. I, I don't think we're there yet. So it, it's probably something like lev or lev. <laughs> I, I can't even pronounce it. So in German it would be lev or lev, but it was a half vowel back then, so pronounced like the English water. But um, my 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 tongue can't do that. I can't add the w sound in water at the end of that word. <laughs> <laughs> Try it, please. <laughs> <laughs> I'm gonna keep pronouncing it, love. Yeah, I like love. Good idea. <laughs> it's worth pointing out that youth love is a modern thing that we made up in Hema. There's no manuscript that ever contains that sequence of words, and in fact, I think it's a misunderstanding of what the epitaph of the youth love manuscript says. Which oh, this is back uh, to the. You're the lion, I think or whatever. So yeah, the lion. This is yeah. the Jewish art of the man called Lev, or the art of the Jewish man called Lev, depending on how you want to parse it. But in either case, it never says the man called Yud Lev. So I don't know. It's I, I've changed the Wiktenauer article to no longer refer to Yud Lev, even though I'm sure in Hema we're stuck yeah. with it because we hate change. Yeah, and I I, I think they call it uh, 
I, I think they say it's the art of the, I don't know, man or Jew, whom they call uh, Den Leven, um, which would be the lion in uh, early New High German. So maybe but it's every... just called like a nickname, the lion, but I'm not sure. But yeah, everywhere else it just says Master Lev or Master Levin. So Obviously. It's not... Oh, yeah. Obviously, it's Master the nickname of Peter von Danzig. Yes, of course. Peter von Danzig, who they call the lion. That makes sense. <laughs> um, counterpoint to not calling it you'd love. It's way easier to find the uh, Wittenauer article on Lev by searching Google for you'd love than just love. <laughs> Doesn't it just pop up in your browser when you type in Lev? That's for me. I, I Does search it just pop up in your browser when you press W into the URL bar? Hmm. Uh, no, I get I get something else when I do that. I find Wittenauer articles through searching Google. Anyway. Anyway. <laughs> Have we killed enough time yet? <laughs> All right. Um, Steve, uh, sorry, Jerry, do you want to give us the, the German for today? Yes, once I found it. Mm. Ah, found it. Okay. Um, nachreisen Lehre, zwiefach oder schneid in die Wehre. We're just going to do much. the first. Yeah, okay. Yeah. <laughs> and Steve, can you give us has this translation? Learn to chase after twice and through the guard slice. Ah, so beautiful. <laughs> is it though? <laughs> Who wants to pick this up? This is a great translation. Bad rhyme is like the only possible translation for the Zettel. It is the I most can, authentic. I can totally imagine it playing to the tune of the Fechtlied. <laughs> this one's not actually that bad of a rhyme. Yeah, All right, great. so should we kick off with translations of Nachreisen? What are we talking about here? Uh, people say racing after, chasing after, tearing after. Traveling after. Traveling after. Pursuit. I've settled on pursuit, and I think I've heard Steve use that too. I use pursue. I use pursue as well. Um, nice. I think that the, from a kind of general, probably the translation point I see people confused most often here is that knock in the sense of knock riser does not need to be correlated with knock in the sense of vor and knock. They might be, depending on how you interpret vor and knock, but they don't have to be. Um, there's no guarantee that something being knock riser means it's a knock technique. Um, as opposed to a vor technique. Another uh, possible point of confusion as far as this word, the word Nachreisen goes, is there's two different German words, uh, Reisen and Reisen. One has <laughs> two S's and one only has one. And one of them means wrenching and tearing, and the other one means traveling. And wow. both, both spellings are used throughout the glosses. You find... You find it with one S, you find it with two S's, which is not surprising because they didn't really standardize language, but it could... Um, they didn't want to make it easy. Yeah, as to what this word actually means. I think I went with tearing after. <laughs> to get it nice and ambiguous. That is ambiguous. Yeah. I have no idea what it means. Yeah, I feel like pursuit fits all of the meanings very well. And um, the thing I really like about Pursuit is that 
you're chasing something like you're you know if you're pursuing something you're kind of going towards it and trying to get it but it's not necessarily running away so right the reason why the reason why i settled on pursuit is because it has a more aggressive sound to it than a lot of the possibilities like following after which sort of sounds passive like you're letting your opponent lead you whereas something in pursuit is often the the predator who's pursuing prey um, so it, I think it, it has a more, it, it just sort of has a better feeling to, in terms of how it works as a fighting strategy, as opposed to just meekly following your opponent. It's a, it, it sounds more like you're hunting your opponent, which is what I think the technique is about. Hunting their openings. Well, and to, and to correlate off that, in the, in the Rosfechten, there's a, a frequent idea of, of Jagd to the opening, right? And so, I mean, it's literally hunt. Mm -hmm. Which I couldn't actually translate Necrison as hunting because of that. My understanding, and like, I've only ever read the, um, the Ross fiction, I've never actually practiced it, but my understanding of uh, Yagen is that it's a, uh, a case where the other person is behind you on their horse. And like uh, attacking you that way. That's not the case. Not necessarily. Not necessarily in the way it gets used. Um, because it seems to be used for an onsetsen or a spresh fenster as well. Yeah, I guess I have to look at those again then. So, Jess Finley, before we go into anything else, do you have any hunting lore you can share with us about Nagrison? We haven't leveraged your ability in that arena yet. I mean, yeah, the word itself doesn't appear to come up very frequently. They use all the other, all the other pursuing words, yagd, right, etc. But I mean that that being said, oh. I mean for me, for me, if I'm going to, I like to create stories about the Hopstuka because for me that that creates a metaphor about which I can talk about what we're doing, like what our idea is, um, and. And so Nakraisen being that you are are pursuing overland to your prey, which is the openings, or which are the openings, and that which opening you're chasing is going to change based on how the opponent reacts and where they put their guards up and et cetera. Um, and so that's that whole entry portion is going to be about that. And of course, you know, there's layers and layers and layers of meaning, which I'm sure we'll get into. But for for me, yeah, I think of it as, as an overland hunt. Um, though I think, you know, if you were someone who who really jives with hawking and and sending, you know, a, a falcon after another bird, that is also a great way to think about this. Which, you know, then you can make it dog fighters in World War One yeah. and the Red Baron, and it's really cool. So you know, it just depends on on what metaphor you like. How out of interest, what's the kind of meaning of jagged yagged? Because I've only come across that term playing World of Tanks. Is it like <laughs> stalking, or is it chasing after? Just hunting, right? Okay. Cool. I mean, I think it works in English, just as hunt. I'm sure there's other synonyms. Cool. Mm, I, don't, I don't know if Johanna has something to say. If no, 
Um, not um, just in the in in the modern uh, high high German meaning, I'd say that hunting does not include the stalking part, but more the uh, quick pursuing <laughs> sense of the word. But I don't know if that's true for for the early New High German or middle high German version. But I wanted to ask uh, Michael if you uh, no, if Nachreisen is in the Latin version and how it's translated there. I don't know, but I can ask Kendra. <laughs> I'm just pulling up her Latin translation document. Nice. <laughs> because I would love to know if they'd go with uh, traveling or with the uh, uh, tearing, ripping a sense of Reisen. Because sure. even in, in Germany, we're her. still fighting about that. Hmm. Really? Yeah. What's the rationale for tearing or ripping? And also, uh, sub-question, what would be the functional difference as an interpreter between one and the other? <laughs> um. <laughs> no pressure, Jelly. We just want perfect answers. <laughs> Jelly, I think we need I to think... defend the German community. I, I think I just want to know that I am right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Technically right is the best right. The true yeah, answer for all of, want, all of him. I just want to tell anyone, I've told you. <laughs> yeah. So the while Kendra is looking at the Latin, I guess, the way I um I talked like way back at the beginning of the podcast series about a kind of a spatial framework for Vor and Nuck, where instead of thinking about them in terms of timing, Vor is a movement to an opening, while Nuck is a movement after a sword, um, after the opponent's sword. And from this perspective, what Nakhrizen becomes is following the movement of their sword to the opening it is creating. Oh, that's that's complex. It's not complex. It's like really that's easy. Fighting right? four and knock at the same time. Well, it's just vor from that perspective. You're not chasing the sword. You're going to you the opening. You're following the sword. But you're you're moving during the movement of their sword to the opening that the, that, that movement creates, and that's a common factor between Ringak's first and second knock horizons, and also between the ways Ringak uses uh, the Asermina, which we'll talk about in like next episode. It's a, a thing that you see as a pattern again and again and again. They're moving in a way that is creating an opening, and you move into that opening during their movement. The Latin uh, apparently translates to pressing the enemy hard. <laughs> <laughs> I like that approach, T, because that means because I I think of it I think of Nakarison as almost circular, right? That you you yeah, like for um if we're talking about like the the Danzig version where where they cut through center and then you cut after their sword, right? Um and then the following plays are they are coming up and you go in front of them. So so there's like this you can chase behind and you can chase in front. Yeah. Which doesn't really work in English, but the way you just described it makes that work. Yeah, like in both cases, their movement is creating an opening, whether it's in front of their sword working to a new place or behind their sword working to a new place. And that's the place you always try to go. Um, and it has parallels also to ideas like the, the Krieg. Um, uh, working your point from opening to opening as they make parries. Each movement creates a new opening, and you move to that during the previous movement. So it's clearly an idea that appears in the glosses. Do we want to talk about the examples that they give in the text now for this? 
I guess uh, let's have let's let's bring it back to T and have him describe the Ringic ones first. So Ringic basically has two like plays for this, although he puts them in a slightly weird order, which is slightly unhelpful. Uh, but one of them is uh, that you attack into what we would call now an attack in what we would call in modern fencing an attack into their preparation. So when they are drawing their sword up to attack, or when they are pulling their sword back to thrust, you attack directly into that movement to the opening that becomes available. And then the second one is when their uh, sword uh, goes past you. So when they make an attack and miss, uh, for some reason, uh, you attack into the opening that is becoming created by their sword leaving it. These bo they both have kind of the same idea, but one is attacking into the recovery of their action, as their sword is leaving, the other is attacking into the beginning of their action, the chambering of their action, um, as it's being lifted up. Obviously, he doesn't write these in a helpful order. Yeah. So that first one's basically the play on Ansetson that the other glosses had last episode. Yeah, it doesn't use the phrase set on, um, and it doesn't describe the four openings, but it is very much the same basic tactical idea, and it's the same, especially the same timing that's implied in some of the other glosses. Um, of going in while they are chambering instead of when they're standing still and ready. It, it also seems to describe quite well the setup that Yud Lev has for the Tverhau against Von Tuck, um, where he describes your opponent, you're waiting, you, your opponent is waiting on you and steps in um, while still in Von Tuck before attacking, and then you spring and cut before he begins his attack, um, which I think is also a great example of, of this principle in action of the first Nakaisen. So I don't view these as plays so much as descriptions of kinds of plays. And so Ansetzen is a kind of play that lines up, and so is the Tverhound. Um, whereas if you just try to practice this in the abstract, it turns kind of lame, because he's not giving you enough context to set it up as this is a specific example of fighting. It's more, this is the kind of thing you can do in this situation. Yeah, I think probably the from a kind of technical play perspective, the most important thing in ring section is the idea of delivering a delivering the attack that you can deliver most efficiently, so that you can do it during the chambering movement. Because obviously, if you're picking up your sword to cut down at me or something, that's not a very long action. It doesn't take forever. And if I wait until you're, if whatever I do is slow, and you're already starting the cut, then I have to be doing something different because I have to deal with the fact your cut's already beginning. Um, whereas if my action is very direct and quick. Um, then it can come in before you have begun. In modern epe, there's an interesting parallel to this, actually, which is uh, an aphorism that you should faint into open lines and attack into opening lines. The idea being that if somebody has a, if a line is already open uh, when your opponent is fencing, uh, they know you're going to attack there and they're probably ready to do something, so you need to do some second intention action, like a feint or a, a beat attack or something. Whereas if you can convince them to be opening a line, like drawing their arm back to make an action or pulling their sword back to make an action, uh, attacking into that because they're occupied with doing something else is a moment when you can just attack safely directly to that opening. Uh, the other interesting thing I notice here is the lack of footwork being described. Um, and I find the times when I've used this successfully are when an opponent is closing against me without actually attacking. Um, right away. So people who like to get into distance and then attack are very easily subject to this because you can smack them as they enter distance. And I've actually caught some very high-level fencers doing that because they don't necessarily realize they're open in that instant. 
Is it is it really surprising? Because I mean, we're twenty five lessons in, and we've barely talked about footwork whatsoever. I, th- I think there's just like a, I mean, there's a lack of footwork in KDF. I mean, yeah, people. That, that is true of Schlagerfechten. Danzig Lay, Danzig Lev have uh, footwork, some footwork information about what would be ring at second neck horizon, where they say when you're coming to them, set your left foot forward, see what they're doing. And if they cut long, don't parry and make sure they don't hit you and then go hit them. The kind of classic interpretation of this in Hema is that it's a void. So you like you step forward, they do their swing, you jump backwards, they miss, you come forward again. Um, Something I've been doing a fair bit in my fencing. I often do a lot of fencing with repeated advances. Um, So trying to push into into quite close distance. Yes, we call it marching. Uh, It works great. The... And sometimes when people are trying to do what Mike is describing of attacking as I step forward, you can break that action by basically breaking the the rhythm of the advance for a beat, letting their cut miss because it's attacking you when you haven't stepped into that space yet, and then immediately following in straight afterwards. And that can be a very nice way to set up the second neck horizon without any backwards kind of void or anything. Because a big backwards void, I always find, takes long enough that it's really hard to be attacking while they're still finishing their cut. If they're coming forwards, I'm stepping backwards. By the time I'm coming forwards, they're probably recovering again. Or you can do, you can you can uh, try to draw that opening by, you know, having your point forward and then pulling back to cut, and then maybe yeah. the Especially if you do that just slightly out of distance, that's a really nice yeah. way to set up uh, drawing an attack. Um, yeah, a lot of the time people cool. will because then that creates the situation when they could onset some slash knock rise them, but they won't because you're better than them. And you'll yeah, I mean, get it. that's an interesting point is about how big the openings we're talking about here. Someone who cuts to the ground, that's a kind of a huge opening, um, unless they have a clever plan in mind, in which case they'll probably beat you, like a strike-in. But if they're actually doing the clumsy cut to the ground, that seems to be what we think of with this, that's a pretty big opening. And the first Nakraisen, we often describe it as a, as a very tiny opening. Um, because we're imagining someone who's already in shoulder from tug and sort of cants their sword back and then brings it forward again. But if you look at it as more of a guard transition, like if they're in long point or something like that, and then they go back to cut, you suddenly get a much nicer opening, um, which you can follow them in with your knock rice. And um, I, I suspect that's what's actually being described here and not someone who does a weird chambering action when they're already in a cutting guard. I yeah. I think both of them are really tight timings. Even if even someone who like you know clums I'm doing air quotes clumsily cuts through, they're going to realize their mistake as soon as they whiff and get their sword up as quickly as possible. And the so, recovery of the sword is just a hand action. You don't need to take a second step to recover the sword, so it becomes kind of naturally yeah. quite fast. Right. So if you're not ready with you know with your cut going as soon as they're you know going past, you're going to miss the timing. Yeah, sure. This is what I really like about doing it with kind of a a breaking of rhythm on an advance instead of a a step backwards, is that it means I still have kind of everything about me is still chambered to move forwards. So I can get into the opening that I've created very, very quickly. Yeah, you got to be ready with that that cut. Whereas anything that's moved me backwards has created momentum that I have to cancel and create new momentum to come forwards again. Uh, And that becomes a lot harder to get in fully on someone's recovery. Yeah, plus you don't have right of way. Uh, you know, if they just missed, I do. 
That's true. That's true. I became very curious about and dancing, you know, for, for the play we're talking about, it just says, don't let him hit you. Right. Like there's no specific advice as to how to avoid being hit. You just be good, which is not helpful. <laughs> Thanks a lot, man. Um, but so, so I became very curious about that. And, um, in Lakushner, in his Zuckin section, where he specifically says, I'm going to talk about Zuckin, which has nothing to do with the way you Zook with the longsword. So that's, that's a piece of information mm. about Zuckin when we all get there. But he does a Zook of the body, which he describes as basically like a volta stabile, right? Like we're furious. But you're just going to turn your body and return. And he calls that the Zuckin of the body. So there may be something here with that um, that that Lichtenauer never ever went into because he doesn't bother with footwork, but um, that you could draw over from other medieval sources if you were that kind of person. Yeah, the the use of the word like uh, watch or something. I think it's Verton in the original. Is that right? Um, is interesting as well. Um, we only really see this described outside of binds, uh, as opposed to Fulin, which mostly turns up in binds. And it seems to convey like looking for more information, but also like you need to have a wider distance to use visual observation. Visual reaction time is physically slower. Um, yeah. I happened to look this up the other day, and it's like 250 milliseconds for visual versus 150 milliseconds for a touch-based tactile. Um, so you get more information by watching someone, but you have to have more space uh, if you want to react on that to act on that information without just getting spanked in the face for it. I have. Um... One technical detail that I want to talk about, and that is uh, in Lev's um, in Lev's gloss of this, his example, he adds um, a little detail: "Do not parry him and assess that his hue does not reach you." Then note while his sword goes downward to the ground, jump forth with the right foot and hew in above to the opening of his right side. So the right side is is a detail that's that's not included in Marianne or Danzig. And the reason I think that is important is because if you're cutting into, you know, if you're doing your normal, so, okay, cutting into their right side, if you're a righty, that's, you know, from your left side. So that's like your weak side, you know, attack. But if you're cutting in with your strong side attack, then since they're down, your opponent's down on their lower left, if they sweep up, they're sweeping against your flats. And they're just going to knock you right out of the way. Whereas if you're cutting in to their right side, when they sweep up, they're opposing against against your force. So you can there's a chance that you'll be able to hold against it. That's an so interesting point. Was, yeah, I just thought that was an interesting detail that Lev adds. The other thing which is interesting about this is that this is when Lev is talking about the Ansetzen, which is basically the equivalent to Ring X first Nakarizen, he talks about attacking to the left side, which is the side which should be forwards. Whereas now that he's attacking after a cut, if somebody's cut, especially with a pass, their right sides come forward. So now he's attacking the closest side again. Um, and that side has changed. Yeah. That's true. Well, and Good I think point. it's worth noting, I'm sure you guys have talked about and are going to talk about, like, Lev always specifies the side that is the furthest from their sword. And, and, and he does this in his windings. He does this in all the stuff. And so it's a little bit counter to the way I have been taught to think about fencing, where the, the safest fencing, like, for instance, 
I don't know, if I do a Zornhau wind, like my safest fencing would be to wind up to their right side because I'm, I'm blocking them out and getting the strongest position. And Lev always seems to advocate this cross sort of situation because what he's really doing is denying his weak to the opponent for as long as he possibly can, right? And so that's just, that's just something that comes up over and over and over and I find really brilliant. So I remember you're referring to like the winding from the Zornhau where he winds to the right, right? As, or at least one example of what you're talking about. Yeah, I yeah. agree. I remember um, I once went and did some Hope Smallsword, which is this crazy smallsword system from like 17th century England that fences entirely smallsword entirely from a hanging guard. Uh, it's wacky stuff with a guy whose name I will edit into this because I definitely know who he is. And I'm just Milo Thurston. There we go. Uh, Lineker School of Defense. <laughs> but Hope prefers a thrust with the hand out and the point angulated back in. And even like, you know, so you're both standing in this hanging guard and he wants to thrust not by kind of opposing through their blade or anything, but by pulling your blade, your hand right out around their blade and thrusting back in behind it. So they have to do a super wide parry um, if they want to try and take your weak and control it. And then you can disengage and come back on the inside, obviously. But it's an interesting like parallel. It was quite weirdly, weird and alien at the time, but definitely something I've used a lot more since. Okay, I have a uh, a more abstract thing to bring up then. So in Danzig and Lev, there's a little blurb at the beginning which explains, you know, what the gloss says, not Christ news. I'll just read Lev's here. The pursuit is many and several things and are intended to be performed with great caution against fencers who fence out of free long hues and otherwise think nothing of the correct art of the sword. So what does that mean, thinking nothing of the correct art of the sword? Doesn't that tie back to like the introduction section? How so? Where you, it talks about shortened cuts and how bad they are. Oh, you're talking about um, where it says step with your cut so you fence long and correctly, right? Yeah. Although there's also a parallel to um, there's a bit in three two seven a where it talks about like bad fencing masters who talk shit about winding because they think that you always need to have uh, like do super long extended actions um, and shortened actions are evil. So that would be an interesting parallel to these guys. I mean, I think that the free long hues t describes the just people in general who sort of do the big cuts from from tag to vexel or whatever don't know how to use things like long point effectively um, because the way this is being described is someone who chambers their cut and then cuts all the way to the ground um, and then we'll, we can talk about whether this the ausermina are meant to be used against someone who doesn't hold the right art of the sword or not but it seems to describe somebody who's more into big actions than into this sort of subtler Lichtenauer type techniques. Isn't isn't a free hue or, or a free thrust this weird term that keeps on showing up that's never defined anywhere? And it just seems to mean from I don't know, maybe the out of outside of distance or without a bind? It's definitely not defined anywhere. I tend to use it to mean without a bind, without any blade contact. But I don't think there's any formal justification you can use to make that uh, make that argument. I tend to define it by its opposite, right? Which is glossed in the horse stuff. Um, so it says that you should 
I have it here, this is Tobler's translation, but that you should in all striking and all meetings always bind strongly on the sword and force and coerce on his sword with your point. And it goes on and on and on. And that you should then onsets, right? <laughs> to reflect the last the last episode. So so meaning there there is this idea of constrainment of Sphingen and that the opposite of that is free. Right? And so a constrained cut is a cut that Sheeson's through long point, right? And that is is threatening to the center, where you know, which gets talked about all over the place. Um, whereas a free cut is a cut that does not constrain itself, nor does it constrain the opponent. And when I think about this, I think about Joachim Meyer mostly, to be perfectly honest. Since he loves those cuts. So is it always bad to do a free hue then? I think there's a couple times when we're told to do one with a with a yeah. asterisk, of course. I think it's notable that the times I can think of free hues are recommended. They normally also recommend withdrawing footwork, which is otherwise pretty rare. Right. Yep. Does is there one in the four openings? Uh, Spare how and Ringick? Does it say free hue or? It does not say free offhand. It just says oh. overhow or like just hue to the head. Um, the one I have in mind. Bang. The one I have in mind is the um, the Zekula in uh, Lev. You do a free hue below and run away before their attack hits you. <laughs> right, right. You do that hitter, right, from later later masters. Right. In, in Danzig, you do the, a free hue to set up your failure and your double failure. Right. Or you act as though you'll do a free hue and then don't. Yeah. Yeah. yeah, I think that's the but, primary reason I use it to mean unbound, um, but yeah. unconstrained is a similar concept. Yeah, so, yeah, that gets fuzzy, right? Because I can constrain myself. True. Yeah, but the failure is deliberately avoiding blade contact, you. which is... <laughs> um, the failure, because it's deliberately avoiding blade contact, like it gives this sort of idea that if a free hue is one where there's no blade contact, then a, a constrained act a bound action is one where there is a blade contact type thing. But. So let, let me offer up an alternate interpretation of this, which is something that I've kind of go, been going with lately, which is that the hue that your opponent does that opens up their you know, upper openings is on purpose. And they don't suck at fencing. They're actually cutting all the way through to kind of uh, goad you into attacking this opening with which they can use some kind of, you know, parrying Albert striking type situation. Because I know some people definitely fence like that. But if that's the case, then then doing this knock Christian might end up being the worst possible response to it. Well, maybe. Because if they're, if they're expecting it, then they're going to snipe your hands or whatever. Like, you're just feeding them the thing that they're trying to provoke from you. Look, fencing is hard. Okay? This just reflects back to the Scheidelhau place, right? That that you're using Uberlauf and you're using Nakarason. Um, if somebody is super smart and is dropping into a low guard, however they're getting there, in this case with a free hue rather than a guard change, right? You know, if you're scared of what's happening, then you fall across their sword, right? You don't try to land a single time counter. You make cover and then you work. This is fine. 
Yeah. yeah. One thing, like, this is actually something I like about the March version I was talking about a bit earlier, is that the the thing they're trying to do is a very smart fencing action. I hit you the moment you're coming into distance. And instead of requiring to make a very elementary error in a very sort of, a very dramatic, exaggerated version of a very simple error, you're deliberately breaking a quite smart fencing action in a way that allows you to continue fencing. Um, so I find it much more applicable versus, like, better fencing opponents. Um, Whereas just okay, you're cutting to my, you're cutting through at me. I'm jumping backwards, jumping forwards again. I can maybe make it work on people who've been fencing for two weeks, but it gets dodgy after that long. <laughs> let let me let me go one step further with with my um, cutting through on purpose thing. So if we're fighting against somebody who's, well, so the idea of cutting through on purpose and and opening yourself like that, it's possible that like a glossator or like a you know, at least an hour, at least an Aryan fencer would consider that bad fencing because it's a it's a preparation that doesn't create a direct threat. And we have some preparatory cuts that happen before actual cuts in the text. But I see your finger, T, and I know you're going to talk about the crumpow. <laughs> oh, okay. Well, let, let me just finish. So. Right, so you're cutting through. It doesn't create a direct threat. Um, there's so like the the Fekera and the um, and the failer both have Unterhaus that uh, you know come before the action, but they're bringing the point online. So you're doing a, a preparation, but ending with a direct threat, which is your point online. So for that reason, you know, I, I think that this idea might hold you know some water. Yeah. The the thing I was going to mention was the most obvious leaked in our example of doing a preparation which is not creating a threat but is instead drawing in an attack. Uh upsets him. Oh yeah, yeah. So okay. Right. And because of that, I need I need to caveat this because we definitely do, you know, create openings, you know make yourself open in one area, expecting the opponent to attack. So you see that in the absets and like like you just said. You and see, you see it, it in right? Krumpau from Shranko. Right, exactly. And it's possible that, that you know, the Krumpau from Shranko could be, like, the situation. I personally don't think it is. I think you're approaching already in Shranko. But also, the Krumpau is the one that breaks all the rules. So it's okay <laughs> if it breaks this one, too. So that's my spiel on that. Of course, it's also interesting if we're talking about that quickly to note that Ringek mentions mentions sets up in the in his Krumpal Shrankot stuff. So there's like a, a verbal callback to these two very closely related. These two actions, which are very tactically closely related, even if not like even if the actual blade actions are quite different potentially. That's what I wanted to say there. But yeah, the idea that somebody's doing it deliberately is definitely plausible. And the idea that uh, Lichtenauer's strategy would see that as bad fencing, or non-doctrinal fencing, maybe, uh, might be a better way to put it than bad fencing, um, is also very plausible. I mean, I, to support that, I guess I'd say, I don't remember the last time I thought it was a good idea to cut to the ground as, you know, just a cut to the ground. The only times I ever do that is to set up some kind of secondary action. Um, so, and I think a lot of people do that once they've been working on cutting to long point for a while. The cutting to the ground stops being a thing you're just going to do as an attack. 
So it certainly makes sense that, that Lichtenauer would be aware of that. Lichtenauer slash his glossators. On the other hand, it's definitely a thing Fiore does. Like, Fiore has some stuff about cutting up and down from high to low guards and back. So, you know, it's so the Fiore the counterplay. Also, Thanks. like, in our, in our modern, you know, uh, Feder fencing game, there's not really any reason to cut all the way through. Um, if you're trying to cut the person, like, if you're cutting all the way to the ground, you're just being mean. <laughs> you're just going to hit harder than you have to. It, it, that's not to say that nobody does it, because people definitely do it. But I mostly see it from people when they think they've got the opening, and they get the, like, they, they think they've got the opening, but they think they need to hurry, so they just go as fast as they can, and then they don't have the opening, and then they go whoosh. I think yeah. since I started uh, test cutting, I realized how important having it rotate in your hands to get the speed is trying to bring that back into fencing there's definitely times when i've gone for a cut and whiffed and left myself a big opening to be hitting so i don't know even when i'm cutting mats i never go all over the ground unless i'm actually trying to because it just doesn't feel right and you don't need to i usually end up in a lower hanger if i'm cutting mats that's just me, uh, though. I mean, to reflect on what Steve was saying, I think, I think whenever you're looking at the at the glosses and interpreting the plays, it's always probably best practice to assume that the person who lost the play did it doing something fucking brilliant, right? And that and that they lost yeah. because fencing is hard, not because they were rubes that don't know how to fence, right? Um, and so, almost always, you can you can circle back around and find a, a, a least an hour play that tells you what the loser was doing that was good fencing and they just lost, right? Yeah. Plus, why are you trying to counter something that's not dangerous? You know? Yeah. This is... Like, like why do uh, we have so many counters to the Oprah Howl? Because it doesn't work? No, I don't think so. Yeah. So to change the subject slightly, we're still going to talk about Doc Grayson. How do we differentiate between the setup for this, for the second Doc Grayson and for the Zornhow? Because they seem to happen at similar distances, right? A distance where you can hold your sword with the point in front of your opponent um, is pretty required for the Zornhow. And that's also the distance where cutting to the ground is not actually going to hit you. So how do you know which one to do? My non-answer to this is body language. And not in a kind of like, there are things about how somebody holds themselves which tells you to a degree where their cut's going to go when they launch it before they launch it. Like you can see if somebody's trying to cut at you or trying to cut at your sword to win the bind they expect to happen. Um, you can see if somebody's wound up to try and cut through, to cut through versus if somebody's going to be trying to like flick the sword forward and get the point in play instead. And the more you have a vibe for that, the more you can pick which way you're going to do it. But the other thing is that I think the way you execute the second Nagarizen, Ringex second Nagarizen, can be physically very similar to the way you would execute the Zornhell. And the thing that they do changes more than the thing you... You might want to start the step a little bit sooner in the second Nagarizen, I guess. But you can make that decision kind of in the middle of your the cut you're already doing with your hands. So you don't necessarily need to have a super distinct stimulus, initial stimulus 
you can adjust the action in the middle of it to switch between the two cases, depending on which one you perceive actually happening. Now, is doing the wrong one bad news? What happens if you do the Zornhau against someone who cuts to the ground? Then you're just standing at long point, nice and close to them, and you take a step and try and parry their attempt to cut your hands, I guess. Hmm. Um, but the hands aren't a target in flash school fencing anyway. So actually, it doesn't yeah, matter. that's true. As long as you've got an extra long cross guard, it's pretty easy to make the parry here. Extra long cross guard. The kind that hits you in the back yeah. of the head and have them tug. Or huge uh, rings on your hilt. Nice, dirty set of gauntlets. So the, she uh, just reminds me of something. Um, Ringek has so that Zadel says that there's that there are two kinds of Nakreisen, and Ringek very helpfully labels them first and second, but Danzig and Lev don't. They only have one play there. What do you think that the two Nakreisens are for Danzig and Lev, and Nicholas? The first one described the Alsaramina and the Nakreisen uh, Zweifach. That's that's three. <laughs> okay, so the first one, the Nakreis and Spyfach, and I guess the um, the uh, Alska Amina are a different thing or something. I don't know. <laughs> so do you think he's talking about oh, the second, yeah. Ringek second, and the Alska Amina would be the two? I don't know. I'm just I'm just <laughs> throwing spaghetti at the wall. <laughs> <laughs> ah, okay. But actually, uh, this kind of relates to what I, unless I, does anybody else have an answer? It looks like you have something to say, Well, I mean, this is interpretive wild theories. But if we're supposed to attack from the Zufeshin with the Nakreisen, the implication here is that we provoke them to cut through and then we chase a second time. So you're going to provoke with the Nakreisen, they cut, you don't let them hit, you chase a second time and hit them. But that's what I like to do with Lishenauer's verse is to look for the things that Lishenauer tells us to do that the glossers helpfully neglected to keep a little bit secret. What is your provocation here? <laughs> How are you provoking? Are you? Oh, it could be anything. It could be anything. It doesn't matter, right? I could start a cut, pull and turn my body so they blow through and hit from my left if we're listening to Lev, right? Like that sets up actually that left cut pretty great. It's hmm. a good point, it does. I mean, I, I don't know, it depends on my opponent. I'm assuming an opponent who is throwing free and long cuts is an opponent who is like in rabbit mind, right? It's an opponent who's a little bit freaked out about fencing me hmm. and they're really thinking about like just getting rid of anything I'm throwing at them. Right? They're not trying to cut through free and long. They're trying to make sure that my blows don't land. So you might not need anything more than a twitch right, to draw out their free and long cut and then boom from that side. So, so to me, chase twice is like you don't stand there like chill and like wait for them to throw a cut out of measure. <laughs> right? Probably not. So that's, you know. Do like an attack with an unknown ending. Do a little faint, and then depending what they do, you take it, take advantage of. It. So to tie things back into foil country, we're saying that the the two 
Nash Horizons are attack on prep and compound attacks. Eyes open, comp- <laughs> <laughs> fully eyes open uh, attack with an unknown ending. Um, um, yeah, I, I, I had a quick quick search through to see where else the term, uh, what is it, Vartan, uh, to watch that the attack doesn't land crops up. And it all seems to be back in the, the twofold failure type territory where you are launching eyes closed sequences of attacks. Hmm. Yeah. I mean, they tend to use it when you're trying to figure out like what your opponent's intentions are, so you can yeah, maybe do a uh, closed eyes attack. You know, to me, so the, the way I've always, or not always, but the way I've been looking at uh, the word Vatten or like Vatten, which is, I don't remember what you said, but um, I usually translate it as assess. And I usually okay. consider that to be like the um, the visual version of Fulin. So yeah. when you're before the bind, you vatten, and in the bind, you Fulin. And that's it, how it you seems, make decisions when fencing. It seems to have like the double meaning of both um, both see and protect, as in like ward or watch, as in the night watch. Yeah. There's like Vatan, which is maybe a different word. Ah, so um, maybe I'm just chatting nonsense for a change. No, no, no you're. Yeah, yeah. No, you're right. So, so Vatan, Vatan means means uh, to wait for once. It means to watch, but it can also mean to to guard. So wait and watch and see, probably. Yeah. Should we wrap this up in a minute? Does anybody have anything else to add? Yes. Okay, go ahead, Steve. So I guess we're going to finish out this section in one episode. So I'll uh, bring this up. So the different uses of the word Nachreisen throughout the gloss, So which give us different... Uh, since we don't really have very many data points in this section, because we only get the one... Uh, you know, the one or two plays, whether you're looking at Ringek or uh, Dancy Glove. So uh, the first one is uh, in Ringek Dantzig, uh Jess brought it up before in the four openings. You shall search for the openings uh, from the two Feichten with Nachreisen uh, and shooting in at the long point. In the Ansetzen, last episode, Michael brought it up at the very end. If he withdraws himself from the sword, uh, perform the Nakaisen, which will be explained to you hereafter in the text. So they're withdrawing from the sword, from the bind, and you're pursuing in. Deutschwechseln, this is in all the versions, uh, except for Ringek. Um, if he remains with the point in front of the face or otherwise against other openings, do not disengage, rem- or do not, um, Deutschwechseln, remain at the sword and work with it to the nearest opening so he may not Nakaisen or Ansetzen to you. In Danzig, in the Dzukin section, the Dzukin is intended to be performed against masters who bind strongly to the sword and remain standing still at the bind of the sword and would like to assess if one wants to hew away in front or withdraw themselves from the sword so that you would then like to knock Reisen to the opening. So this is against somebody who's withdrawing or cutting away, cutting around. 
And finally, in the uh, Ringek Sprechfenster, there's, um, if he retracts the sword to himself and wants to stab you below, pursue him, uh, knock ice in him at the sword, and plant to him above. Hamzets in him above. This is exactly Ringek's first knock Ryzen, including the uh, the idea of, uh, or if he will thrust you, at the no moment he yanks the sword to him for the thrust, so chase, pursue him, and thrust him before he does the thrust. In in modern fencing game, do people actually pull back their swords before thrusting, or have they done too much modern Olympic fencing for that? That depends a bit on exactly what people are doing. If people already have a... You see it a bit when people like have made a cut or something uh, and want to get their sword free. Um, especially yeah. if you bind their blade after a cut, they'll often pull it back. Um, that's definitely something you see, I think. But it depends a lot on the exact distance and the exact way they're trying to do the action. The more they're driving the thrust with their feet, the less necessary it might be. In actual modern fencing, uh, people don't really pull their blade back before a thrust because they normally hide it like behind their body anyway, so it can only go forwards. But I have definitely lost points in foil by pulling my sword back between a beat and an attack and getting stabbed during that moment. So cool. it's a thing which people do, but only as a bad habit. So, so an interesting thing about all of those other cases in the gloss which we don't get from uh, any of the examples we've talked about today, is they're all from a bind. Mm -hmm. So you do them all against somebody who is leaving the bind at the wrong time, and you're exploiting that by pursuing with the point. Or I assume with the, with the edge, with the slice, if, you, you know, if you're at that distance. Cool. So, well, and it's not explicitly called out, but if... If you start looking for Nakarison as a tactic, it's everywhere, right? Um, if you think about like countering a countering a Sverhau with an Abschneiden, you know, you you fall over their swords so they Sverhau around, so you chase and slice their arms off, right? Um, and you guys are going to get here when I'm not here, but this this kind of goes forward in the Nakarison chapter a little bit to why Indes lives in the Nakarison chapter, right? I yeah. haven't even started. Panicking about doing a cycle on Indus. <laughs> I'm so sorry. I, I didn't mean to bring up a painful subject. <laughs> yeah, another another uh, case is the uh, the Sverhow and Lev. How uh, the the detail it includes about you know you step in, and then you know they're in Fomtag, and as soon as they step in, that's when you're supposed to do the Sverhow. Which is another case of you know taking advantage of their movement to do your thing, even though it doesn't say specifically say Nachtreisen or Hansetsen or whatever. Yeah. Yeah, and this is everywhere in wrestling. Like if you don't Nachtreisen, you can't wrestle, right? Yeah. yeah. Like one of the classic wrestling plays: push somebody as soon as they push back, throw them. What's this based on? Their movement. Yeah, yeah, that's why there's, like, that's why there's um, so many uh, passivity rules in judo. <laughs> because you can't wrestle someone who's just like hunkered down and defending the whole time. Yeah, that's why uh, judo didn't invent all the crazy sweeps. Yeah, does anybody have anything else they want to bring up, or should we wrap up? Uh, I just want to highlight something that Steve mentioned a minute ago and came up earlier, which is we talked about in the first section of the four openings, Lichtenauer's instruction in Danzig only, um, although Ringek also alludes to it less clearly, 
that someone who wants to be a master of the sword should only be using three sort of tactics, which is shooting the long point, using Nakaisen, and um, winding from the bind. And I think that that sort of is the forms the foundation of my entire interpretation at this point. Um, I think it's a crystallization of all of Lichtenauer, but the if you consider Nakaisen to only be, you know, he cuts at you, so you slip the leg and hit him back. That doesn't make sense remotely. So you really have to take this more expansive view of what Nakaisen means in order to understand why that's a solid third of all of Lichtenauer's tactics. And when you do look at it that way, then like Jess said, it pops up everywhere. Uh, but especially this Ringex first Nakaisen and everybody's second Nakaisen give you a basic paradigm in which you can apply most of the plays um, that we see throughout the gloss. Like all of my st five strikes, I try to apply according to these paradigms. Well, I guess or for sets and not Zorn have as much in terms of how to attack your opponent and how to recognize when he's giving you openings. As I think it's a bigger lesson here. So I was angling to wind up now, but you've just gotten onto something really spicy. So, sorry, Joey, you don't get to go to sleep tonight. <laughs> it's all right, um, we're an hour earlier because you guys went forward in time in New Zealand, so it's not yeah. that late yet. So, how does, forgetting Vor and Nash for one moment, how does Nakhrizen kind of dovetail in with ideas of tempo and opportunity? Is it same-same, or is it that... Uh, that kind of conceptual framework hadn't been invented yet, but this is describing roughly similar things. So if you, take, <laughs> if you take Giovanni Dialognocchi's like five tempos, which I can't remember all of them offhand, but I can probably look them up in a minute. Anyway, Ringex, uh, Ringex, Tunac, Horizons line up pretty well with about three of those. One of them is like when they're recovering their sword after making an attack, which is obviously the second. Um, one of them is when they lift their sword up to strike. One of them is when they like respond to a feint, so they put their sword somewhere stupid. One of them is when they lift their foot, which isn't explicitly in Ringek. Um, nah, and I can't remember what the fifth one is. In KDF. Yeah, we don't really have K uh, footwork, so you don't need that. Uh, KDF <laughs> is actually fence like Mensur, where you just stand still. Um, <laughs> Apart from when you're springing, right? Oh. <laughs> uh, or just when you're doing a flesh. Guys, uh, obviously, not Christen is Gonosen and Sensenusen from uh, JSA. But it like it definitely has a lot of parallels to the idea of, in a more serious note, one of the framings of tempo is an idea of a good moment to attack. Um, Alan Evans, who's a modern fencing coach from the Pacific Northwest, um, has a great set of articles about like framing tempo in this method and using teaching lessons around it, um, which I highly recommend. And a lot of what he's teaching there can be paralleled quite accurately to that horizon. You know, ideas of looking for a moment when they are doing a thing, they're committed to an action which is not threatening you, and therefore you can begin an attack in safety. Is like uh, whether that's because they're doing an attack which is missing or because they're doing a thing which is going to become an attack but isn't an attack yet can be really quite handy. I'll take this one step spicier. I think that Nick Rison lines up pretty well with uh, Mike and Corey's interpretation of George Silver's True Times. Hmm. Okay, I, think I understand. But in terms of finding the being in the right place where you can attack your opponent as they're exposing themselves in that instant, um, and ideally without having to move into the distance to do it, um, 
the way they've described it. So I don't know if it lines up with George Silver's actual text because it's been like 15 years since I read it, but it certainly lines up with a lot of the examples they've been showing of what it means to fence in true times. So I wouldn't be, and especially given the German influence in London in that time period, I wouldn't be surprised if there's some connection there to go super wild. Yeah. So swinging back to slightly more sane, uh, sane <laughs> points. Um, <laughs> oh, just got silver. That's enough. Michael mentioned the uh, the dancing like three times to attack, which Ringek basically divides into two. He says that shooting in and knock rising on one of them, and then winding is the other. And you have this like shooting in and knock rising are basically if you split if you go back into the idea of vor knock, they're both vor actions. They are not doing a thing which is threatening you yet. And therefore, you can either shoot the point in to draw a parry and work to an opening, or you can follow after a movement which is not threatening you to go directly to an opening. Versus if they are coming towards you, now you have to do knock, and then from knock you use fulin, you wind, and that's the other way you begin your attack. So you kind of can split that down into a big before and after. If they're coming for you, you do Vinden. If they're going, that uh, if they're not coming for you, if they're doing something else. You can use knack horizon or shooting in the point um, to create an opening instead and get your hit like that. And that lines up with how we see things like Absetson described, um, where in this case, you're explicitly letting them come first, and what you're doing is winding um, as a result. I would break it down even more simply that it, the knock, you know, to, to correct Jester, I'm so sorry. But, but it is, there are two things. And the one is knock race and, and shooting the long point is one thing, because it's an and. I was about to, right? I was about to ask that Fenty does that too. Yeah, yeah. But the, so I would break it down from the Zufestion and from the bind, period. From the Zufestion, you do these. From the bind, you do these. And this, this kind of, there are two ways to deal with the situation. Shows up in the harness fecton. I went and double- looked it up real quick because he he says that there there are two stances from which you will fight and what he means by that is with the spear and with the sword right these are clearly not two stances these are two approaches the long fight and the short fight right and we're seeing that reflecting clear back to like the beginning of all the things right from way back in the harness saying hey hey, hey remember when we did like the long fight with and Ansetsen, and then the short fight with Vinden, the same thing here, spear, sword. So, yeah, that's my take. And then that definitely also plays back into the idea of going first to going second. If I'm going first, I'm probably further away, I need to use something long, whereas if you're coming to me first, and I'm going second, I'm going knock, then a shortened action often becomes more sensible. Yeah. So, like, they play into each other as well from a that more, like, temporal-spatial perspective, as well as just as well as the distance aspect. The um, the cases of Nach Reisen, so, so all the um, ones that I listed before, all being from a bind when the person leaves the bind. So that kind of comes back to those two things, because when you're in a bind, you're using, like, Vinden. And then as soon as they leave the bind, you immediately use Nach Reisen again. To or you stand Yeah. There's an interesting, um, uh, a spicy, interesting little parallel to modern uh, foil and epee fencing here, which is that when you get really, really close to it can be really tricky to hit them, um, especially if you're trying to hit with point, uh, hit with the point of your weapon. 
um, because you just physically don't have the space to bring it into a target. And one of the most dangerous things you can do if you're in that close situation potentially can be to step backwards at a bad time because you're creating a space that lets the other person make an attack immediately. And you're automatically at a distance because you're stepping back from like touching distance. You're going to be in arm extension to hit distance, which is very, very difficult to parry in because the arm extension is so fast. So it can be an extremely risky action to step backwards at the wrong time, um, especially if you're already in a close, a close fight situation. And you're not allowed to do hip throws. That does make it particularly difficult in modern <laughs> fencing, yes. Um, but the Miles Chamley Watson around the back of your neck uh, special is a good one. Yeah. All right. Uh, I think it's time to wrap up. So thank you very much for listening, everybody. This has been episode 26 of Fencing by the Book. Our panel today have been Johanna Hopfgardner, Michael Chidister, Stephen Cheney, and T. Key, and our extra special guest, Jess Finley. If you'd like to see more of what Jess Finley does, then she has a, a Patreon, which we'll link to uh, in the show notes. And check out her translation of Ourswell's Wrestling, wasn't it? Sweet. The manuscript much. gloss of Ourswell's Wrestling, which is particularly cool and interesting. Extra spicy. Super right. interesting. Cheers. Bye.